text this morning is from the prophecy of Jonah, chapter 1 to verses 1 through 3. Let's read that together. This is God speaking to us in his word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. After the sermon, we will sing about God's mercy and faithfulness. Psalm 57, the stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, Jonah, what do you think of when you hear that name? you think of Jonah and the whale, right? Jonah and the whale or the great fish. Most people are familiar with the story. It's really an incredible story, isn't it? But we have many questions about it. Perhaps even some reservations. For example, how could someone survive inside such a fish for three days. What kind of fish would it have been? Some people, it seems all a bit much. As a result, the book of Jonah, the prophecy of Jonah is often treated as an allegory or a myth. But if that were indeed the case, then the Lord Jesus himself would not have given it credibility by comparing his three days and three nights in the grave to the three days and three nights Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Jesus treated it as a real story, as a historical fact, and so should we. But the fish as such is not the story. It's really only incidental to the story. What is the real story then? What is the message? Well, that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. The theme is as follows. The Lord wants Jonah to be his humble witness in this wicked world. And then we will look at two things. First of all, the Lord's compassionate concern, and secondly, Jonah's arrogant indifference. The text says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came to him. What a wonderful beginning. God spoke directly to a sinful man like Jonah, and he calls him by name. Jonah, son of Amittai. And so Jonah was no stranger to him. He knows his name, his family. He knows everything about him. He knows Jonah better than Jonah knows himself. And he knows especially 
what a sinful man Jonah was. And yet he speaks to him and wants to use him to further his kingdom, to bring his word. Isn't that wonderful and comforting? Certainly a comfort to me that God also wants to use a sinful man like me. He wants to use Jonah and also each and every one of us to advance his kingdom. As a matter of fact, brothers and sisters, that's why God created us, to advance his glorious name in the midst of this sinful world destined for destruction. Who exactly is Jonah? Well, there's one other place, aside from this prophecy, where we read about him in the scriptures, namely in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. And from this passage, we learn that Jonah, who lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, was already an established prophet before he received the call to go to Nineveh. And we are told in that passage in Kings that he had prophesied that the borders of Israel would be restored to their former dimensions, which is also what happened. Jonah's prophecy came true. During Jeroboam, Jeroboam II's reign, the greatness of Israel rivaled that, if not surpassed, the splendor of the time of David and Solomon. And so it was a peaceful time, a time of prosperity. There were no external threats to its existence. The nations were content to let Israel be. Everything was coming up roses. Israel didn't have a worry in the world. They had it made. There was plenty of food. There was great riches. They were strong. It's not really unlike today, is it? For we also live in a time of prosperity and peace, relative peace. Indeed, when you read through the prophecy of Amos, who was, as I mentioned, a contemporary of Jonah, then you find out how good the people had it at that time. In Amos, we read that Jeroboam, Jeroboam had won many battles against the smaller nations around them, and that Israel had become a powerful nation, more powerful than any other nation in its history. We also read about an exceptionally large merchant class in Israel that possessed great houses of dressed stone and de decorated with inlaid ivory work. Amos also tells us that they had pleasant vineyards with their trailing grapevines and luscious fruit. They ate and drank to their heart's content they anointed themselves with the finest oils and listened to music while lying on fine couches. They were also deeply religious, for they celebrated their religious festivals with many blood offerings and with elaborate choral music. But Amos also tells us something else. He tells us about the terrible moral bankruptcy of Israel. Even though outwardly they were religious, there was flagrant injustice. 
everywhere. Judges could be bought with a piece of silver. The rich oppressed the poor and the weak. The majority of the people did not really serve the Lord. Well, sure, outwardly they did. They went through the motions, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They were a haughty, proud people who looked down on others in a lesser state. They did so to their fellow countrymen, but also to the other nations around them, as we read in Amos. Now, why do you think they thought that way? Well, they thought they deserved it. After all, was Israel not God's favorite nation? Are they not his people? Did he not especially choose them? They felt smug and secure. They were happy and content and had a sense of entitlement. Do you know why they thought that way, brothers and sisters? Because they thought that they deserved to be God's special people. They thought that they were better than anybody else and that for that reason, God smiled on them. How arrogant. But do you know what is even more disturbing, if not worse? Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, shared that way of thinking. He too thought that Israel was such a great country and that they deserved that status. As a mere servant of the Lord, he lacked humility. Jonah lacked insight into himself and into God's people. Jonah was unaware of his own sins and the sins of the nation. And so it's no wonder that Jonah did not understand why God would send him on a mission that he did. He could not understand why he would send him to the nation of Assyria, which was so decadent and immoral that it deserved to be destroyed. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh, which was one of the greatest city of the world of that day. And it was no doubt a most splendid city, and it had a storied history. Nineveh had already been in existence for thousands of years. It was there that many Babylonian emperors throughout the ages had their palaces because it was beautifully situated. The first time that a city is mentioned is already just after the flood in Genesis 10, verse 11, where we read that Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, that he was the one who built it. At the time of this prophecy, it boasted a population of 120,000 inhabitants and it occupied an exceptionally large area. The administrative district was between 30 and 60 miles across. It took a three-day journey to go from one end of the city to the other. It was a magnificent city. But now it says in our text that the wickedness of that great city had come up before the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? Actually, isn't it wonderful? You may ask, well, why? What's so wonderful about that? Why is it so wonderful that their wickedness came up before God? 
Well, just imagine if that wasn't so. Just imagine that God would overlook the sin of that city or of any other city. Do you know what that would mean? That would mean that the Lord God no longer cares. That would mean that then he would leave them in their miserable state. And when God does that, when he no longer cares about the wickedness of mankind, then he gives them over to their own filth and to their own state of condemnation. And then there's no longer any hope. And so it's a good thing that the Lord cares very deep, deeply about the whole world and what happens in it. He cares about what happens here in Edmonton, in Canada. He cares what happens in the USA and in their cities. He also cares about what happens in the countries of Africa and Australia and China and North Korea and South Korea and in Afghanistan and Sudan. He deeply cares about every nation here on earth. And so we have to be careful. For we too are sinful people. But he also cares about my wickedness and your wickedness. He cares about how we behave. Why? Well, not in order to condemn us, but in order to save us. In order to have us call upon his name in repentance and to ask him for mercy. For because of our sins, brothers and sisters, we stand condemned. And he does not just want that from you and me, but he wants that from everyone in the whole world. It's not just so that God just cares about the believers and specifically about us as Reformed believers. We may think that we are the only ones on his prayer list and not others. But that's not true, and that's clear from this text. When he sends us his warnings, he sends them to all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. He sends them in the form of earthquakes and calamities and viruses to everyone in the whole world. Why? so that we may repent. Because the destruction of the world is coming. And only those who believe and who call upon him will escape and be saved. As believers, we know about the gospel of salvation to all those who believe in him and who call upon him in mercy. And so shouldn't we therefore also tell others about why calamities and illnesses and, vir and viruses come upon us to tell them that God sends these things to warn us, to tell us to trust in him. Jonah thought that God should not have anything to do with the wicked people of, of, of Nineveh. Whatever they have coming to them, 
he figured, well, they deserve it. Let God care about his own people, not the others. They already stand condemned anyway. Well, brothers and sisters, if that's how you think, then you're wrong. God cares. When a nation sins, then that sin deeply disturbs him. He does not overlook their sins. And that's why he sends warnings in so many different forms. And he sends warnings to you and to me as well. And he reminds us time and again that we need to repent from our sins. For there may be secret sins in our lives that in the end may destroy us. Oh sure, we may think that we can hide those sins. Can you? In one way or the other, the Lord God will confront you with your sin. He will not leave you or me alone. And he will send you a storm in your life to wake you up. He does that because he wants you to ask for forgiveness. And to turn to him and to depend on him and to trust in him. Just like he wants all people here on earth to do. You see, the Lord God knows everything. Your personal sinfulness is known to the Lord. He knows all about you and me. Remember what we sung from Psalm 139 where David asks, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David knows God is everywhere. We cannot escape his presence. And that is why David also asks that the Lord search him and know him. For David knows that if God were to overlook his sins, that then it would be utterly hopeless for him. He says in Psalm 23 and 24, or in verse 23 and 24 of that psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you ever pray that way? In your own personal prayer? Do you ever pray to the Lord that you want him to discover if there be any offensive way in you? Do you? Well, that's what God wants. He wants us to realize our own depravity. For you do not want God to pass over your sins. For if he does pass over them, then it will not be well with you. If you do not allow him to point out your sins to you, then there will come a time when it is too late. For then the power, for then the devil will have you in his power. And then you won't be an effective witness either. I don't have to tell you that. It's obvious. For someone who does not have insight into his or her own sins will have a wrong attitude. For such a person thinks that he or she is better than others and will come across as having it all together and therefore will come across as somewhat arrogant. And then you won't be fruitful. No, 
the Lord God wants us to reach out to others, also to sinners in humility, in love and compassion, because we care, just as God cares. And it takes a lot of wisdom and insight to see how we are to do that. For you see, it's not just about us, about you and me. It's also about the world. It's about our fellow man. We cannot hide out in our own little corner and keep our treasure to ourselves. We must share that glorious gospel of salvation. But we must do it in love and compassion and understanding, not with a judgmental attitude. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that although we live in this world, we do not judge the world. God judges the world. We must keep in mind that God holds all men to account, that he is the one who judges us and who judges them. But he still wants to use us and that is why through us he wants to confront them and give them a chance to repent. And that's how he deals with individuals and also with nations as he did with Nineveh. The Lord says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, to that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Jonah is now sent to the heathens to proclaim God's message. But Jonah has a different mind. Second point. Jonah ought to have been happy that the Lord came to him and to want to use him to bring that message of repentance. He had been especially chosen to bring God's word to that heathen nation. But instead he refuses to do what he is told. Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction as the Lord God tells him to go. He goes to Joppa on the coast. He buys a fare and sets sail for the city of Tarshish, a city likely on the coast of modern-day Spain. Now, why do you think Jonah did that? Do you think perhaps that he was afraid, afraid that he could not do what he was told to do for one reason or the other? Well, that's highly unlikely. Jonah appears to be the bold type. He's not like Moses who protests when God commissions him. Moses was afraid that he would not be able to do that, and he wanted to send his brother Aaron. As appears from the rest of this book, Jonah seems to be quite the confident man. He is much taken in with his own worthiness and the worthiness of his fellow church members, from the letter, it's also clear that Jonah is not a person who sees his own shortcomings, nor the shortcomings of his own people. No, Jonah is not afraid. That's not the problem. Something else prevents him. What could that be? Could it be perhaps that he thought that the Lord would not be able to follow through on his threat to destroy that city, and that he would be making a fool of himself? Well, brothers and sisters, that cannot be the reason either. For there is nowhere any deference, any evidence that Jonah does not believe that he is able to do what he says he will do. 
No, Jonah believes in the power of God. What then is the problem? Well, the problem is this. Jonah is loath to do what the Lord tells him because he does not believe that God should send him to that heathen nation. As I said before, Jonah is a proud Israelite. Jonah cannot understand that God would have anything to do with that heathen nation. Furthermore, Jonah does not even want them to repent. He hates the Ninevites. Why should they have a second chance? And so you see what the problem is, don't you, brothers and sisters? His problem is that he very clearly sees the sins of others, but he does not see his own sins, nor the sin of his own nation. It's also a warning for us. When we see the sin of others, we first have to see our own sins. And only if you do that will you not come across arrogantly either. And you'll be much more effective and real and approachable. Ultimately, Jonah's action was that of unbelief. Jonah did not believe that God's mercy is as great as he said it is. He thought that his mercy was more for the church, for Israel, than for the rest of the world. But God wants all kinds of men to come to repentance. That is why he also sent his own son. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son to deal with sin and when he died and before he rose he sent out his disciples to go and preach to all the nations. One of the problems that we all have and I include myself that too often we take our blessings for granted. Believing that God has chosen us and that we are his covenant children and that God's favor rests on the church, which of course is true, but because we are so familiar with that truth, after a while we begin to believe that God's favor is due to us because we're such good people. Really? Are we such good people? Search your hearts, brothers and sisters. We're not. Not any better than others. But you see, that's the trap that the Jews fell into. And that is why the majority of the Jews rejected Christ when he came to earth. They no longer saw their own sinfulness. They boasted of the fact that they were children of Abraham. And that is why Israel was cut off. It's no longer a branch of the vine. They were broken off. Others were grafted in. But brothers and sisters, the same thing can happen to the church of today, to you 
to me. It can happen that we think we are too good for the rest of the world, and we attribute our material and spiritual and emotional well-being to our own obedience, to our own inherent goodness. But listen to the warning of Paul. He says in Romans 11, verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Indeed, in the end, that's what happened to Israel. But let's be careful. It can also happen to us. Again, it's not because of something that we have to do, but it's because of your heart that has to be right before the Lord. We all sin. Also in those same ways. But we need to look at ourselves carefully and see whether or not there is any wicked way in us that we need to repent from. And that's a daily thing. We need to be humble in our attitudes, humble before God. Jonah should have been thankful that God wanted him to go to Nineveh and bring the message of reconciliation to that nation. He should have been thankful that God would not overlook their sin. For when God does not want to look o overlook the sin of the world, he certainly doesn't want to do that to the church either, to you and to me. And the sad thing is that once you set your mind on the wrong course of action, as Job did, you often also find your unbelief confirmed. You see, the devil has a way of fooling us. He whispers in our ears and tells us that everything adds up. That everything, that it is logical that things go the way that they're going. And no doubt that's the way it was for Jonah. He fooled himself. But what does he do? He goes to Joppa. And lo and behold, he finds a ship going to Tarshish. A ship going in the exact opposite direction. And now he starts fooling himself. He sees God's hand in this. He thinks God provided a ship for him to go in the opposite direction, didn't he? He made me part of his people and even made me a prophet. And so God is surely with me, isn't he? Why else would he provide that ship and the opportunity? By the time Jonah went on board, he was fully convinced that it was the right thing to do. And that's why he could also sleep so soundly, as we can read further in this chapter. I'm sure that's the way it was with Eve as well. She knew that the fruit was forbidden. But then she saw that the fruit was good for food. No doubt, by the time she took a bite of the forbidden fruit... She was convinced that it was the right thing to do. God put that tree there, didn't he? And the fruit is there for our consumption, isn't it? So what's wrong? How many times do you and I not find ourselves confirmed in our sins? Think about it. Think about the things which no longer bother us but which we know deep down should bother us. Am I fooling myself? Well, if you're not too comfortable right now, it's understandable, because that's how we are. 
and hope that the Lord will find a way of confronting you with your sin before he sends you a storm. And pray that you will have the, the strength to change. For brothers and sisters, you and I, we do not want to have a false sense of security. For that can be deadly. The Lord is about to send a mighty wind as Jonah makes his way to Tarshish. Thankfully, God does not leave Jonah alone. And that's the comfort that we may have this morning. God will not allow you and me to wallow in our sins. And the same thing is true of the rest of the world. And so we must witness. But how? With compassion. By grasping the opportunities that God gives us. By doing it because you care. Do it in love. We want others also to taste the joy of salvation. To taste the peace that we may have. And we do not push sinners away by judging them. We approach them with humble hearts, with compassion, with thankfulness to the Lord that he begives those who repent. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the discovery of your sins. The more we realize our own sins, the more we realize how great our redemption is, and the more we are driven to lead lives of repentance. And the more you want to share. So brothers and sisters, be thankful. Be thankful that God has made you and me part of his people. But therefore be compassionate towards other sinners. Whatever message you want to send to them, make sure that it is a message of salvation for all those who do not want to live in their sins and who do not want to be condemned because of their sins. God is merciful and full of compassion. Amen.